reason I touched that is just to make sure it's working. It's working. <laughs> As you remember, two weeks ago we talked about the fact that the Lord had impressed upon us to bring a word related to Philippi. And as we began to pray, we sensed the Lord taking us down two different paths. One, the story of how the gospel came to Philippi, which would be found in Acts 13 through 16. And the other being uh, an exploration of the epistle itself. And as we sought God, we sensed that he wanted us to speak on the theme of how the gospel came to Philippi. And so we followed the story of Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Silas and Timothy and so on until that story was complete. But as we continue to pray, it seemed that God this morning would have us talk about the epistle that Paul wrote to the Philippian church. It's hard to find a more encouraging section of God's word than the epistle to the Philippians. It's just filled with wonderful, encouraging things that help us in our walk with Jesus Christ. It also has many paragraphs that are very easy to memorize. I assume almost everyone here who memorizes Scripture has memorized Philippians 4, 4 and following, in which Paul wrote, I say, rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your forbearance be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth understanding, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I'm sure if we asked how many of you could recite that today, there'd be many hands. And if we said to do it in unison, it would be like tongues, because we'd hear so many different versions. But uh, that's a passage that just almost anyone who memorizes Scripture memorizes. What a wonderful section of God's Word. And then we think in the chapter before, in which Paul talks about the fact that all of the things of life that could have been accolades to him, he has counted them as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ. In that wonderful section in which he discourses upon the value of knowing Christ. The latter part of chapter 1 in which he talks about in the clearest way of all of Scripture the fact that when we die, we immediately go into the presence of Jesus. Many, many things in the book of Philippians just are so encouraging to us. But you know, the thing that hits me as I read that epistle is this. The church at Philippi and the glimpses that we have of it in this epistle, to me, describe Tulsa Christian Fellowship. It's almost as if Paul could have said, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ, to the saints in Christ who are in Tulsa Christian Fellowship, and on and on he could go, because as you read the glimpses of that church as it is displayed in that epistle, you say, that's who God has made us. And so this morning, that's a theme we want to follow. We want to follow that theme. We're only going to be looking at chapter 1, because in it are all the themes that are elaborated on elsewhere in the epistle. So let's look beginning at verse 1, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. And then he says, including, <laughs> including the overseers and servants, grace and peace to you from God the Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how he says that. First of all, let's think about the term how Paul viewed himself, a slave of Jesus Christ. There was never any place in God's Word that Paul elevated himself. He always viewed himself and his labors as slaves of Jesus Christ. Some of you have read the book I wrote some years ago, The Doulos Principle. Before I wrote that book, sometime in the 1960s, looking at Philippians 1.1, that's the first time I'd ever noticed that Paul described himself and his fellow laborers as slaves of Jesus, the word doulos. Uh, the King James says uh, servants, the NAS bond servants, but the Greek literally means slaves. And so when I had that experience in the early 70s, in which God began to really highlight that message to me, I was already in my spirit prepared for it because I had read Philippians 1.1. Slave of Jesus Christ. That's the way we need to think of ourselves as well as sons and kings and priests and so on. But also, we're slaves of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then notice he says to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, and then almost as an afterthought, oh, by the way, also the overseers and servants. Isn't that interesting? His emphasis is not on the leadership, but his emphasis is on the church. That's the way it should always be. It's sad to say that we're in an age in which, as Jim Elliott, the missionary martyr, wrote, he said, I grieve over the state of the church today. I long to see the New Testament church in its simplicity, but the church has become something of men and means. And so here I must wait till I see the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he was speaking to Peter, in the great uh, confession Peter made, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, Simon, art thou, uh, art thou blessed, art thou Simon Barjona? For flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but thy Father which is in heaven. And then he said, upon, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Maybe we've said this before in the pulpit, I don't remember. But in the Greek, the normal way that you would say that is tain ekklesion mu, the church of me. But the fact that the mu is removed from the in and put in front of Tain Ecclesia, he is emphasizing it is my church. I will build it. I will never give it to anyone else. I'll never give it to any pastor. I'll never give it to any bishop. I'll never give it to any denomination. It is my church. And that's the way the syntax reads in the Greek of Mark 16, 16. Or rather, Matthew 16, 16, and 17. My church. Where does church leadership fit in relationship to the church? In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul wrote that as Christ ascended, he gave unto men gifts. And then he said he gave some as apostles, he gave some as prophets, he gave some as evangelists, and he gave some as shepherd teachers. But why? Well, most versions say for the equipping of the saints. The Greek word is katarchismos, which means to put things in its place. Think of a jigsaw puzzle. You open the box and there are all these pieces. And you look at them and, and you're not cutting any of them. They're already formed. 
And so you say, what will I do? Well, first you look for something that looks like a corner. You put that in place. Then maybe something that will fit the corner. And then after a while you get a frame. Then you start filling in the middle as all of the interlocking pieces of the jigsaw puzzle finally present a picture of some kind, sometimes beautiful, sometimes ugly, but still a picture. That's what katartismos means. It means that the one of the primary roles of church leadership is to help each person be in his or her precise place in the body that he or she can function fully and become what God wants him or her to be in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're all born with a temperament that stays with us all of our lives. But as the years go by through experiences and other things, we develop personalities, and in time that spirit is that uh, temperament is spirit-filled as the Holy Spirit enters our life. And it's interesting that the Lord seems to bestow certain clusters of giftings with certain temperaments. It's important that church leadership come to know the body of Christ, the individuals in the body enough that led by the Holy Spirit, they can help each person find his or her place of service and know the joy of being all that God intended for you to be as you function according to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But the focus, you see, isn't on leadership. It's on enabling the church to be all that it can be. How sad today we see so many, it's brother so-and-so's church. Oh my goodness, something is wrong. So as we look at TCF, not to be proud, not to boast, because what we have here has not been created by any man. All of us are the recipients of what God has given us. And he has given us here the blessedness of having a council of elders lead the church. People say, who's the pastor? They say, we don't have one. You don't have one? No. <laughs> We're led by seven elders. What's that? Then, of course, extended conversation. Usually, I walk away realizing they're not going to listen anyway. But the New Testament pattern is that the church does not focus on leadership. It's the body that is important. And leadership are merely God's instruments to produce what he wants. And so as I read it, Philippians 1.1, I think, that's TCF, isn't it? Leadership almost an afterthought. By the way, we notice that it says, first of all, overseers. And as you read in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 28, it becomes clear that the overseers of the church are elders. Now, if you're reading the King James, you read bishops, sadly, they do that, or you read other terms. But if we're going to translate the Greek terms for language we use today, elders from Ephesus were called to Miletus. And Paul, meeting with the elders, said to them, shepherd the church of God over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So elders' task is to oversee the church the way shepherds oversee a flock. But the focus is the flock, not the shepherd. That's Ephesians, or rather Philippians 1.1. The focus on the body, leadership, almost an afterthought in the way he addresses the church. And then he says, I thank God in every remembrance of you. And I thank God for the way that from the very first you have been in fellowship with me in the gospel. Now, 
Some versions say you have participated with me and so on. The Greek word is koinonia, fellowship. You have been fellowshipping with me in the gospel. What's he talking about? Later on he tells us that after he had preached at Philippi, he left behind Luke and Timothy to help strengthen the church and to uh, bring forth leadership in the body. But he and Silas said, well, we've done our, done our job here, let's travel on. And so they went south to a major city, Neapolis. The Holy Spirit didn't let them preach there. They went on south to Amphipolis. The Holy Spirit didn't let them preach there. And so they kept going, and they came to the port city of Tarsus. Bing, this is the place. And so they began to preach the gospel, and that Thessalonian church was born. Paul said, writing later on in chapter 4, you'll notice in Philippians, he said, from the time... We left Philippi to Thessalonica. You kept sending money. More than once, he said. And throughout the ministry, he said, you're the only church. You're the only church that through the years has faithfully supported the ministry. I thought, TCF. Look at the missionaries we have. But think about what that means to be fellowshipping with him in the gospel. Now, I have to resist the temptation to launch on the subject to fellowship, but fellowship means that we are dependent, we're entwined, we're all one. Um, let me just take another aside here. You know, when we talk about deacons, TCF, we don't have anybody that we have labeled as a deacon, but functionally, we have them. They're the church councils. We have the uh, missions council. We have the women's ministry council. We have the men's Council. We have the building council. We have those who lead in children's ministry. All of these are functioning in the role that most churches would call deacons. The word diakonos, diakonoi, plural, which literally means servants. They're individuals to whom the elders, the overseers have said, we assign this ministry to you. You take care of it so we can give our attention to oversight and other things. But you do this. And so all of the councils that we have really are fit the, the label of deacon, diakonoi, which means servant. And so we do have that. And at the ladies' ministry uh, tea they had for the young ladies a week ago yesterday, I've heard such glowing reports of that, really glowing reports, especially of the talk that Linda gave, the talk that uh, Nicole Lotz gave. And Patty was telling me about the talk that Nicole Lotz gave, and she talked about the redwoods. And how Nicole pointed out the redwoods don't put down deep roots. But they put out lateral roots. And so all of the redwoods in a forest, their roots are all entwined. And so they survive not as individual trees, but they survive as a forest. Isn't that beautiful? That's koinonia. That's koinonia. And that's the term Paul used. You have koinonia with me in the gospel. We are intertwined. And every time Paul went to a city to preach the gospel and people got saved, Philippi was preaching the gospel. Every time Paul planted a church, Philippi was planting a church. Now think about that. Think about that. Every time someone comes to Jesus Christ because someone whose name on that board back there has preached the gospel, TCF has reaped a harvest. Isn't that something to think about? as we have faithfully fellowshiped in the gospel with those that we have sent forth. Something else to think about. You know, 
We love our missionaries, don't we? At one time, every one of them sat in this auditorium. At one time, every one of them became members of this body. And so really, they're our church wherever they are. And because we love them, we tend to focus our prayers upon them, upon the vicissitudes of life that they're facing. But listen, we really need to pray for why they're there. Why they're there. Why on earth would somebody go live where the foxes live unless there was a reason? We need to focus on why they are there as much as and perhaps even more than we're praying for the missionary himself or herself because that's why they've gone out. It's important that we understand we are in a fellowship of the gospel, not just loving our brothers and sisters who are on the front line. So Paul said, I thank God for my every remembrance of you and the way that you have fellowshiped in the gospel with me from the first time till now, as he wrote later in chapter 4. And then he said, I pray that you might increase in true knowledge and discernment. The word there that's translated true knowledge is epignosis. In chapter uh, 3, we find other terms used respecting, reflecting knowledge of God. And we've mentioned this before. We've mentioned it again because it's pertinent here. One Greek word which means to know God is the word idon. It's a derivative of arao, which means to see. I see something. I, I know who it is. I know what it is. And that's a word that sometimes is employed knowing God. That's an important concept because you really need to know who this God is that you're worshiping, that you're not deceived in worshiping a false God if you're just by feelings or experience. We need to know who is he. And the only place you know that is, as Bill pointed out a couple of sermons, that's in the scripture. You know, you can look at nature, you can look at the stars, you can look at the trees, you can look at the rivers, you can look at the mountains and draw conclusions about God, and people all over the world have done that. So some worship trees, some worship the moon, some worship stars. But the only place you get objective knowledge of God, the true identity of God, is in his holy word. That's idon. We need that. The second word is gnosko. Gnosko refers to experiential knowledge. I have experiential knowledge of you because we've lived together, we've known each other, we've We've wept together. We have rejoiced together. Even as husbands and wives know each other sexually. It's through experience. But the other word is epignosis. Epignosis encompasses both of those. But it has the idea also of accuracy. And so Paul says, I pray that you will grow or you will increase in true knowledge and discernment. True knowledge and discernment. First of all, true knowledge of God. You heard the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Get to know a person real well, you don't quite uh, hold them on a pedestal maybe like you used to. Uh, historically, more than one ancient writer said things like, every man is a hero, everyone except his valet. Of course, we don't have valets anymore, so that wouldn't count. Well, think about God. It's just the opposite. The more we gain true knowledge of God, the greater grows our awe. The greater grows our awe. 
That's sad today, I think, that the word awe has become such a common word. There was an awesome ball game, an awesome song, awesome vacation Bible school, it just said, you know. The word originally meant stunned into silence. What a word. And that accurately describes what happens to a person when they get a true view of God. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah 6, Woe is me! I am undone! I have seen the Lord! John the Apostle, who at the Last Supper sat next to Jesus and leaned back on him as Jesus leaned on Judas and some other disciple leaned on John. But that kind of intimacy, and yet when he saw the glorified Lord in Revelation chapter 1, he fell before him as a dead man. The more we get to know God, even though we have intimacy with Him, the greater the awe. Many of you have read to your children, perhaps to yourself, The Lion, the Rich, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Do you remember the Christ figure in that story is Aslan, the Lion? And remember when Mr. Beaver is going to introduce Susan to Aslan, and he says to her, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. She says, oh me, I thought he was a man, not a lion. Is he safe? Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? (laughs) He's a lion. But after all, he is good. And he is the king. What an interesting (laughs) picture there of God. He is good. He is king. He loves us. He has given the son on the cross for us. Yet, he is God. But you'll notice Paul says, I pray that you might grow in true knowledge and discernment. And then he goes on saying, so you know really right from wrong how to live, what pleases him. And that is displayed so many times in Scripture. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, you know it well, but it closes by saying that you might prove what is the acceptable will of God. That uh, Hebrews talks about having the senses exercised through experience as we live with this God whom we hold in awe, and yet this God with whom we have an indescribable intimacy, almost conflicting thoughts. And as we read about him in his word, and the Holy Spirit illuminates that word for us, more and more we come to know what pleases him. And we don't follow a code of rules like some denominations have. You know, when I was a boy, we used to, have the thing, Rudy Toot Toot, Rudy Toot Toot. We're the boys from the Institute. We don't drink, we don't smoke, and we don't go with the girls that do. But anyway, that kind of attitude, you know, (laughs) flows in so many churches, just a bunch of rules. But what for us are rules are really not just laws, but they're an expression of the person of the God whom we know. And we want that reflection of his character and his goodness and what is right and wrong in his eyes.
purposes of what God gives. So to grow into knowledge, true knowledge. It's interesting to me also to notice that in chapter 2, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And what's the next thing he says? For God will complete the good work he has done in you. You notice that? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but you're not going to do it by gritting your teeth. You're going to do it because God is working in you. You notice the fruit of the Spirit, and as you list, notice the different facets of the fruit of the Spirit, one of them is this, self-control. And it's a self-control that comes about because the Holy Spirit is inhabiting you and transforming you so that that self-control is Spirit-given and Spirit-led, not just through self-discipline. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. That's tied to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Almost contradiction, isn't it? And yet, ultimately, it's cooperation with and reliance upon the Lord. And I know these things as I know you and I know this church and I know you as individuals. How many of these things are so beautifully and clearly displayed in your lives. I could almost brag on you, <laughs> but I thank God that he wrote this letter to the Philippians, which in essence was almost written to Tulsa Christian Fellowship. So let's again hear Paul, Paul and Timothy, to the saints who are at Tulsa Christian Fellowship in Christ Jesus, and by the way, to the church leaders and church servants, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank my God for every remembrance of you. Thank you, Father. And Lord, as a church, we do not stand and say, look at us and look what we have done and how perfect we have become. But, oh God, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is alive, that you have loved us enough to give us not just a group of people, but a family. Thank you through Jesus. Amen.